We're able to have more of our church family here to worship with us and to hear from your word this morning, Lord. I pray that you would encourage us with your word this morning and that you would just um, just fill us with your grace and speak your truth to us um, through the Holy Spirit, Lord, that it wouldn't be from our own understanding or from, our, or from Pastor Ben's own understanding, Lord, but that it would come straight from, from your spirit and that we would apply it to our lives. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter number 5. If you're new with us here this morning, we are and have been going through the book, the epistle of 1 Peter. We're near the end. 1 Peter chapter 5. According to WHO, that's the World Health Organization, there is a disease that is one of the world's deadliest. It kills a million, over a million people every year. In fact, in 2018, 1.5 million people died of this disease. Over 10 million people are infected each year with this disease. 4,000 people die every day because of this disease. What do you think it is? It's tuberculosis is actually what it is. In the 19th and 20, early part of the 20th centuries, the death rate for tuberculosis was much higher than even that. In fact, in many areas, they set up these sanatoriums. Those were hospitals in the mountains where they sent these people who had what they called TB or tuberculosis. And the death rate in many of those places was 80%. So it was a very deadly, very contagious disease. There would be outbreaks in different parts of the country. And actually, I found a picture of one of these sanatoriums in Arkansas. This is a picture from back in that day there. I've told this story before, but it's actually really appropriate for my sermon here this morning. So I'm going to tell it once again. My grandma's first husband was named Floyd. And my grandma, Inez, and Floyd were married, and she was 17. I think that was kind of early, but whatever. She was around the age 17, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend that for you teenagers in here. But anyways, within the first year of their marriage, she was pregnant and had a baby. And by the end of that year of their marriage, Floyd came down with contracted TB, tuberculosis. There was an outbreak in Arkansas where they lived. The doctor said because of the rapid deterioration of his lungs that he was going to die. So they sent him to actually, I don't know if this is the exact one, but this, I, I looked this up and I think this might be the one, the sanatorium in the Ozark Mountains. My grandma wrote this about uh, the time, how she felt at the time. This is what she wrote. She said, our world had suddenly come to an end. All our hopes and dreams were shattered. Death, with all its ugliness, stared both of us in the face. We could only cling to each other and weep. Have you had times like that where you felt like that right there? Maybe someone's listening at home. Maybe you feel like that right now because something has happened in your life. Well, while he was in that sanatorium, an older pastor, retired pastor, came by and gave him the gospel. And at the lowest point of Floyd's life, this pastor came by and he humbled his heart before Christ and accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. He wrote a letter to my grandma, and who was, I say grandma, but she was 17, you know, so it sounds kind of weird. But newly wed, had a new baby, husband was dying, and was soon to pass away. And he wrote her and gave the gospel to her. And she went to a church that was open, by the way, preaching the gospel, and she got saved. And she came to Christ. She humbled herself before the Lord and came to Christ. And now three generations later, that's me, three generations later, we praise God that their suffering brought them to the point of humility and repentance before Christ. You know, when we suffer, when we go through very difficult things, what do we need during those times of suffering? We need God's grace. Well, how do we receive God's grace? It's actually through our humility. Let me, let me show you this. I meant to say this earlier, but this is one of the, the signs that they post around there to protect people against tuberculosis when there was an outbreak. 
I like, actually really like their recommendations. Keep away from sick people. We say that here. Um, give plenty of rest. Train and healthy habits. Wash your hands, in other words. And consult the doctor regularly. That's used to be how we used to deal with things like this. But anyways, that's just my own little uh, agenda right there. We'll get off of that. But we need God's grace when we go through different times of suffering. And God's grace comes to the humble. God saves us by his grace to those who humble themselves in repentance and faith. God gives sustaining grace to those who live a life of humility under the almighty hand of God. In fact, look down in our text here this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 5, really I think verse 6, the end of verse 5 and verse 6 really sum up this text for us. He says at the end of verse chapter 5, verse 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he may exalt you. God ministers grace to your heart when you humble yourself before him. There's a sense that when we suffer, we are humbled before God and for other people, it brings us low, it gives us a lowly perspective. But the humility of verses 5 and 6 isn't just a humble state. It's not, it's not like when a child you know, loses his friends and is crying in his bedroom or something like that. It's not a, just a humble state. It's actually a humble heart. It's actually the inner soul surrendering to God. It's a person becoming broken before the, lo- the Lord and crying out to him on their knees in prayer. This is the kind of humility here that abandons self, that comes to the end of oneself before God. It's, it's a spiritual brokenness that, says I, that, that is empty of all self so he can be filled with all the grace of God. This past week I read a book called um, Humility by Andrew Murray. I would recommend it to you. As we do our series, we're going to do a series in the next couple of weeks speaking of humility. This is what Andrew Murray says. He says, humility is an attitude before God that lowers myself to the place of dependent creature and allows God to rule as God of my heart. And for Floyd, for Inez, my grandma, God's suffering, or the suffering God put in their life, it humbled them to the point where they humbled themselves before the Lord and were saved. I think about the fact that we've been preaching on suffering and I don't know what happened the last two weeks, but our church was plunged into suffering. And, and some, some of you that are new or whatever, you might be thinking COVID, and it's not that. But we've had some people who have lost loved ones. And we had one member of our church who had a, a tree fall on them. And he's listening, probably Lord willing, from home. And we, and we have another lady that's in the hospital um, after a surgery, very serious, dialysis and all that. We're praying for each other, aren't we? And a lot of you have suffering that maybe you haven't even told each other about or told me about. Nothing awakens your heart to the reality of God being God and you being the creature than suffering. Nothing awakens your heart to the reality that you need God's grace than suffering. And suffering brings us physically low, but most importantly, God wants us to be spiritually low, spiritually broken before him so he can give us his grace and all that comes with it. With God's grace comes joy, comes peace, comes fullness, comes comfort. So 1 Peter here was written to this church who were suffering. They were suffering, and they needed God's grace. So if you're a suffering church, and you need God's grace, what do you need then? After that, what do you need as a church? Well, I think you need leaders who are filled with humility and can give out God's grace to the congregation. And so that's what you see here, actually, in 1 Peter. In fact, look down in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, he gives a summary on suffering and teaching on suffering. And then notice how he transitions from verse 19 to, to verse 1, speaking to elders. He says in verse 19 of chapter 4, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then verse 1, so, so because of this instruction of suffering, so therefore, because of this, I exhort the elders among you. The so in verse 1 is very important. It links the suffering of the church in verses 12 through 19 
to the elders leading the church through suffering with humility. Our church is in a time of suffering. Our church, our, our country is facing a time of suffering and difficulty and multiple fronts. What is, I think, odd in our day, and I talked about this a little bit last week, is as people are suffering, as our country is going through a time and probably even will have a worse time of suffering, many Christians, many churches, frankly, many elders and pastors are in a time of waiting, waiting for the suffering to end. Maybe at some point it will end. Oh, last year it was going to end in the summertime, right? Then it was going to end when the election happened. Now it's, everyone's waiting. When's it going to end? Many churches in 2020 and 2021 have taken a break from being the church. And, I, and again, as I've said last week, that we should be careful as a church, probably follow that. That's probably some good instructions I just put up there on the screen for tuberculosis, right, and how we... We uh, are careful around those things. We take precautions as we've done this morning. But church, our church shines. And the church of Jesus Christ shines during suffering. When, 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 the, when the dark clouds of suffering come over our country and over, over our hearts, that's when Christ shines forth his grace. And I was thinking this past week, that there's something worse. There's something worse than getting a disease and dying. What is that? It's dying without Christ. And there's something worse for a Christian than death. Because actually death is in the presence of Christ. But there's something worse. You know what the worst thing for a Christian is? Wasting your life. The worst thing for you as a Christian is, is to waste your life and do nothing with your life. And then die. And be in the presence of Christ. And so what the churches of America need... I think what Peter is saying here is the churches of America, you need elders, you need pastors that will step up and be pastors and lead the church. And he's saying, listen, pastors, elders, wake up. The church is suffering. Lead your church through the shepherd them with the word. Continue spiritual oversight. I'm so thankful for our elders. We have not been perfect, and they have not been perfect over this past year, but they keep pressing on. And the question is always, how can we be the church? How can we keep going? I, I do not remember the elders this past year all saying, you know what, we should probably just quit and just like wait around until, you know, something else happens. It was always, how can we be the church? How can we keep ministering to souls? And I think what text like this pushes us as a church to recognize that your elders need prayer. I need prayer. I stand in the need of prayer. The church, the elders of America, the churches of America, they need prayer. I'm thankful for a, a pastor, a retired pastor, who went to a sanatorium. Listen, older and a, with a disease that was contagious, and he went there to give the gospel. I'm thankful for that guy. You know why? Because I'm here today as a Christian because of that testimony. I'm thankful for a church, even though there was an outbreak of, of that in Arkansas. They gathered. They actually had weekly meetings, and my, my grandma came to Christ. My point is I'm thankful for these churches, and these pastors that were the church, we're the pastor, and we're pastors. They did what God called them to do. And again, I'm not saying we should be foolish and we want suffering. My point is, is, is that we could, should continue to be the church. And so what you see in the New Testament is that when the church is suffering, elders are to step up. In fact, look, listen to this text of Scripture right here. This is Acts 14. Paul, and, Paul has gone to these churches, planted these churches. There's many tribulations happening within the church and this is what the scripture says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, suffering is a part of the church. You're going to wait for suffering to stop. That's called death. And then you're with Christ, right? And so it's going to happen. And so what did Paul do in response to the suffering when they had appointed elders in every church? So there's singular church, plural elders. That's where we get the idea that there should be a plurality of elders because in every church, singular, there was a plurality of elders appointed there, and they really were there to help them to shepherd that, those churches and those people. So we're doing a series on humility. Really, um, my title of it is Humility Within the Church. This week, we're going to study verse 1. We're going to look at the model of humility. That's Peter, kind of an irony of that, since he wasn't really a humble person at many points of his ministry, but we see him as the model of it this week. Next week, we're going to look at the hum humility of the elders. And then after that, in verses five through seven, we're going to look at the humility of 
the church membership. As we go through this text, as we read through 1 Peter 5, 1 through 7, I want you to kind of see this pattern that's taking place here. I, I think this entire text here, all these verses, kind of can be summed up like this, and a proposition like this. Those who fulfill their God-appointed role with the attitude of humility will be exalted with future glory. So I want you to think about that as we read through these texts. Those who fulfill their God-appointed role, so God has a role for every person in the church. Some are elders, some are members. God has an appointed role. We all should approach that role with an attitude of humility, and all of us look forward to be exalted with Christ in future glory. So let's look at the text here this morning. Would you do this with me? Would you stand as we read God's word? 1 Peter chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. I'll read it aloud as you read along with me. 1 Peter 5.1. So I exhort the elders among you as a feller, fellow elder, that's Peter's role, fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. So there's the hope for glory. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, that's the role of the elders. And here's their attitude of, of humility, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and now the future. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And now here's the church. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Close, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. That's future exaltation, casting your cares, your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, as we look at verse one, I pray that the scriptures will be opened to us in our minds. I pray we will humbly fall before you. And I pray your grace will be poured out upon us. Preach a better message this morning, Lord, than I have prepared and preach it a better message into the hearts of people the message that you have for them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you are like, wow, you're really we're like in halfway through the sermon and we uh, are just starting. But hey, hold on, it's going to be a lot of fun. Look at verse 1. We're starting in verse 1 and actually that's the only verse we're going to do this morning. Here Peter exhorts the elders. And he does so based upon his own testimony. He says, I exhort the elders among you, so those, the elders within the church, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Peter addresses the elders in the church by identifying himself as a fellow elder. There are many titles that Peter could have used. He could have said as an apostle. He could have laid out his apostolic authority here. He could have used the imperative and commanded them as the apostles speaking to the elders. In some sense, he could have, not in necessarily a bad way, but spoke down to them and said, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. What's interesting, Peter shows his humility here and saying, hey, listen, I'm an equal with you. I'm a fellow elder with you. In fact, look at even the wording he says there. He says, exhorting, to exhort. That means to encourage. That means to, to come alongside of. It's a counseling. It's like a partner in ministry. So notice he fulfills his role Peter fulfills his role as, as an elder. Now, when I say the word elder, what do you think of? If you have a certain denominational background, you might have an idea of what that is. And so I'm going to ask you this week and particularly next week to kind of cast aside whatever biases you have towards that word and just ask, what does the scripture say about an elder? This word elder is, the Greek word is presbyteros, which is transliterated into presbyter, it's used 67 times in the, in the New Testament. Seven of those times are just speaking of an older person or a mature person. And then 60 of those times it speak of a group of mature men, and whether it be the Sanhedrin, those elders, or whether it be in the church, those elders. And so the word elder generally refers to a mature person. For the elders of the church, there, there should be these mature men who are, as we're going to learn next week, shepherding the church and who are having spiritual oversight of people within the church. In the New Testament, the title elder and bishop and pastor are three titles that describe one office. 
this past, or I guess a week ago, I went to the hospital. I was able to visit someone in the hospital that was in ICU. And so I went in there and I told the person, you know, I'm Pastor Ice. And you wear a suit and tie. You put your Bible up like this. And they let you in places like that. So, so anyway, so the guy printed off the, you know, the tag for me. and has my name on it. Put it on there. It said, Father Ice. So there we go. I guess I'm a father now too. But, but that's not a, actually a biblical title we see in the New Testament here. I'm an elder, I'm a bishop, I'm a pastor. Those are all different descriptions really of expectations and responsibilities that the Lord has for me and for our our elders here. We have five elders at the church. We're going to talk about that more particularly next week. But where where do we see that Peter was an elder? He says he's a fellow elder. Where's that in the New Testament? Well, do this with me. We go back to John chapter 21. We're going to be flipping a couple places in the Bible this morning or pushing if you have a iPad or something like that. But we're going to be going around to some different texts. In John 21, Peter is out fishing. Remember, Peter was a fisherman. He started off that way. And then Jesus called him to follow him as a disciple and then said, you're going to fish for people now. But what we see in John 21 is Peter going back to his old role as fisherman. But Peter, or Jesus, is going to present a special role that he has for Peter, and that's of elder. That's actually of a, a shepherd, one who would shepherd God's people. So in John 21, we see Jesus on the shoreline. He's in his resurrected body. Peter recognizes Jesus, and there's a lot that happens there, but simply he swims to shore to Jesus. I want you to imagine Peter, before he jumps into that water and swims, I want you to imagine what's going on through his, in his mind at that time. Peter has been an utter failure of being a disciple, of being a follower of Christ. I mean, and he was an utter failure at leading the disciples. He denied the Lord three times. He went from being the leader of the 12. He went from being the rock. He went, and he sunk like a rock, right? He went down to the lowest, really, point in his entire life right here. That's what we see. He's in the lowest point of his life right here. And you know what's interesting? That's just where Jesus wanted him. I imagine Peter on that boat as he's fishing and he's thinking through, and you've probably done this before, thinking through all the failures that he, that took place back in that garden and back in that courtyard. I mean, I can imagine as he's pulling in these fish, he's kicking himself mentally, right? You've done this before. Like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did that happen? And he's going lower and lower and lower in his spirit. He sees Jesus, he he jumps in the water, he swims ashore. Jesus has there a breakfast for him. Oh, the kindness of Jesus to do this. And look at John 21, 15. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. I want you to notice there at the very end, Jesus was calling Peter into another role. It was into shepherd. It was into feeding lambs. And who are those lambs? That's the church. That's the people of God. He was calling Peter into pastoral ministry. Isn't that interesting? He did it at the lowest point of his life. Verse 16. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. Again, who are those sheep? It's the church. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know I love you. And Peter's like, Lord, you know my heart. You know I'm at the lowest point possible in my entire life, but yet I still love you. (laughs) Like, I'm at the bottom, Lord, you know this. And he was in a humble position before Christ. And like I said, that's where Christ wanted him to be. But I want you to notice the distinction that Peter here has been humbled by his failure. But he's not yet really humbled himself under the hand of God in faith and obedience. You see, there's a difference between being humbled by a trial and humbling yourself under God's hand. The first, being just being humbled by a trial, that, that's having your spirit be pressed down by the difficulties of this world. You know, you've, you've been there. You've lost a job. You've lost something. You feel so low. You're in that boat pulling fit, 
pulling fish in. You're thinking, why did I do that? Why did I fail in this way? And you're humbled by your situation, by your trial. But, but the second humbling of the heart is when you surrender your soul to God. When you come to the place of, of complete personal abandonment, and you turn from yourself, you turn from your way, you turn from self-dependence and self-reliance and self-interest and self-exaltation, and you turn to Jesus Christ. And th- this is a time of crying out to the Lord. This is a time of prayer. This is a time of spiritual humbling before Christ. And when we humble ourselves in this way, this is the time when Christ comes in and he fills us with his grace. And then he exalts us. And so he says to Peter, he says, Peter, feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, shepherd the church of Jesus Christ. Go obey me, Peter, trusting me. And Peter did humble his heart. He followed Christ. In fact, go to Acts chapter 1. We see Peter having renewed grace and power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, Jesus commands them, go and preach the gospel. Jesus ascends to heaven. Peter and the 120 go to this upper room. And there we see this small church. It's about, our church is about 100 and what, 30, 150, 100, whatever, when we have everyone here. So it's like, this is a kind of, I don't know how many we have here this morning, maybe. But probably it's a smaller group. But here's a small church of people. A small group. And Peter is in front of them. And he's reading the word. He's teaching the word. He's leading them in prayer. What's Peter doing? He's pastoring them. Like, here's Peter the pastor in front of this group of people. And then he gets up, and he preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 2. And he preaches, and 3,000 people come to Christ. So the church of Jerusalem goes from 120 to 3,000. Look at Acts 2.41. Those who received the word, that's from Peter preaching the gospel. They were baptized. They were added that day, about 3,000 souls. So now these these members are added to this church, or these people are added as members of the church. Look down at verse 42. Who's the one that's teaching and pastoring? Well, it's the apostles, of course, with Peter leading that. He says in Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers. So the, the apostles are these de facto elders of the church. They're, they're, they're shepherding the people. They're, they're overseeing their souls. They're leading the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, go to Acts chapter 4, verse 35. When the people bring their tithes and their offerings, or whatever you want to call it, when they bring their financial support, where do they go? Well, the elders, or I should say the apostles are in front of the church. They bring it and set it at the apostles' feet. Look at Acts 4, 35. They laid it, that's the offerings, at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as had need. So here you have these apostles functioning as elders, also look down in Acts chapter 5, verse 3. You see the first church discipline. You know what that was? Ananias and Sapphira, they lied about their giving. And Peter says, look at Acts 5, 3. Peter is the, the central figure here. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And what happened? They dropped down dead. I'm just going to say church discipline isn't done like that today. Capital punishment is left to the government and to God, if he so chooses. But what you see is Peter overseeing this aspect of the church. And then go to Acts chapter 11. What you start seeing then in the middle of Acts, you start seeing the apostles and then the elders of the church of Jerusalem. You see these two groups of guys alongside each other. They're sharing responsibilities. And at some point, the, they appointed elders that were not apostles to oversee the church. Acts 11.30, and they did so, sending it to the elders, that's the elders of Jerusalem, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And again, go to Acts chapter 15, verse 2. So Barnabas and Saul, again, come, and they come to the, the church of Jerusalem. In Acts 15.2, you see others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. That was the elders of the church. Okay, a lot of flipping around. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 5. The point of this is this, is that Peter was an elder, and he modeled being an elder to these elders within these churches. So he's speaking as an equal, and he modeled this humility before them. And then secondly, Peter learned, Peter learned the attitude of humility from the master, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, 
And then he says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, what does Peter mean by that right there? Well, it's pretty simple. It means that he witnessed the sufferings of Christ. But now you think about that. When did Peter witness the sufferings of Christ? If we look at the New Testament, we consider when he witnessed the sufferings of Christ. Was he there at the cross? Well, we don't see that in the New Testament. In fact, the only time we see him witnessing the sufferings of Christ is when he's in the garden and then when he goes and he's before the Sanhedrin there. And so what, what's taking place here? What does he mean by this? Well, he could just simply mean, hey, I, I saw that. I think actually he's going a little further with that. I think Peter's alluding to something even more because when Peter was in that, that courtyard there, he saw the humility of Jesus, but also this was a time when he was humbled before Jesus. Okay, we're going to do some more flipping around. So go back to Matthew chapter 26. We're just going to stay here in this text, and then we'll go back to 1 Peter. Matthew 26. Peter was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. On the night before Jesus' suffering, before his death, Peter was a pride-filled, arrogant, self-confident man. And you can see that in the accounts of the Gospels. Look at Matthew 26, 31. Jesus said to them, You will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus is the shepherd. They, the eleven, now are the sheep. And they're going to see him suffer, and they're all going to run away. And so Peter, he thinks very highly of himself. And so he rebukes Jesus. Look in verse 33. Peter answered, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Oh, the pride of Peter. Not to trust the words of Christ. Has anything Jesus said not come true? But yet you reject his word here. Oh, the pride of Peter to think he could stay away from his sin by his own self-effort. And oh, how much we are like Peter. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Here's even a sign that it's going to be true. And Peter said, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. And so here, he's leading, right? Peter's leading the wrong direction, right? He's leading with the heart of pride to destruction. Peter was emphatic. He had exalted himself in his mind to this high position of self-importance. He was completely dependent upon himself and upon his own interests or his own self-effort. He was dependent upon his own virtue, his own determination, his own will. And he led the disciples in the same path. And then Jesus takes them to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're the 11. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, come pray with us. Come pray with us. And you can see that down in verse 38. Jesus is praying. Here is Jesus. He is humbling himself. He's emptying himself and praying to his Father. I mean, he knows, Jesus knows, this is his most needed time of grace. Right? He's about to go to the cross. I mean, if Jesus needs grace from his Father any time, this is the time. So what does Jesus do? He goes and prays. And he says, Peter, pray with me. And what does Peter do? He sleeps. Look at verse 38. Jesus is crying out, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me or pray with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face. And he prays, this is Jesus' humility. My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's asking for grace from his father. Verse 40, and he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so again, Peter's the target here. So you could not watch with me one hour? And Peter's heart was so puffed up in pride, he didn't need to pray. Maybe Jesus did. What? Like, that doesn't make any sense. But he doesn't need to pray. He was so steeped in his own self-interest that he would rather have slept than prayed. And really what was going on here is Peter just didn't see his need for prayer. He didn't consider himself as one who needed to pray because he didn't consider himself as one who needed grace because Peter didn't really see himself as needing God at that moment. And we see that actually in verse 51. Finally, Judas comes. He has all these you know, soldiers, hundreds of soldiers come into the garden there. Jesus willingly surrenders his own self, but not Peter. Look at verse 51. And behold, one, that's Peter, of those who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand. So here's the fisherman trying to wield a sword. Drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest's ear. He's trying to cut his head off. He cut off his ear instead. 
Peter took this whole thing into his hands. You know, he was going to be the hero. He was going to be the hero who saved the day. You know, move over Avengers. Here comes the rock, Peter. But he didn't save the day. Jesus stopped Peter, healed the, so- healed the soldier's ear, rebuked Peter again. And he told Peter, you're trusting the wrong person, Peter. You say, well, where's that at, Pastor Ben? Look at verse 53. Jesus says, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? And Peter ignored God, pushed God aside, and Jesus says, listen, hello, my father, look to him. You're looking to yourself, Peter. Peter wasn't trusting God. He wasn't humbling himself under the hand of God. And therefore, Peter, after this, ran and hid in fear. And then now we transition to the point where Peter witnesses Jesus' suffering. Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin as guilty. Look down in verse 66. They said he was guilty of blasphemy because he claimed to be equal with God, which was actually true because he is God. So, so their accusation was true, and so they wanted to kill him because they didn't think he was. Verse 66, they said, he deserves death. Uh, maybe I got the wrong text there. But anyways, look at verse, 50, uh, verse 57. Uh, sorry, fifty. that was 56, now 57. And they spit in his face, that's in Jesus' face. They struck him, some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And at this moment, Peter, Peter had already snuck into the courtyard. He was watching Jesus from afar. He was, Jesus was blindfolded and mocked and beaten. And Peter stood back, acted like he didn't know Jesus. In fact, to the point where when he was asked directly, do you know this man? Are you associated with this man? Three times Peter lied. And he denied that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did Peter lie? Why did Peter do all these things? Why, is this, why was this a part of his life? It's because Peter had a heart that was full of pride. What is the source of our sin? What is the source of our rejection of God? And it's really a heart of pride. The heart of pride prioritizes the exaltation of self and therefore the need to do whatever it can to protect me and get what I want from me. And really the the defining word there is me, right? It's all about me. And the reality is pride is the source of all sin. It's about self-fulfillment, self-interest, self-love, self-protection, self-exaltation. It's about yourself. If you're a child or you're a teenager in here, is there conflict in your home? Do you have conflict in your house? You're like, no, our house is perfect. <laughs> is there conflict? Why do you have conflict in your house, children and teenagers? Why do you have conflict? You're saying, because my brother fights with me. Well, is fighting the source of your problem? Your parents might say to you, stop fighting or stop talking back to me. Is that really your problem? What's, what's the source of that? You say, well, it's sin. Okay, what's the source of sin? It's pride. The reason that you have fighting and arguing and contention between you and your parents and between you and your siblings is because of pride. It's pride that wants you to exalt yourself above your sibling and put them down. It's pride that causes you not to want to be wrong, so you're going to fight to prove that you're right, even though sometimes you know you're wrong. It's it's pride that blames someone else for your problems. It's pride that causes you to talk back, to bicker to your siblings, with your siblings, It's pride that that causes you when you want to go to the car and you want to get the certain seat. It's pride that pushes your sibling aside, right? (laughs) And pride that that makes fun of them or puts them down. And where does that all come from? It's this consuming love that you have for yourself. The desire to be exalted at the expense of other people. And really, it's a self-deception because you think the higher life, the better life, is the one where I'm God. (laughs) You might not say it that way, right? But I'm God, and everyone serves me and worships me. So you push God out of your life. You push other people down. You exalt yourself. It's actually a pretty miserable existence. But that's really the source of your problems. It's pride. Pride is why marriages fall apart. It's why couples argue and marriages end in divorce. Pride's... Pride thinks, I'm not going to say I'm sorry. Like, that person better say they're sorry before I do. It's pride, it's pride that holds a grudge and punishes with silence or punishes with screaming. 
It's pride that hardens the heart to believe that I must win this fight against my spouse. And if I win, our marriage will be better. And when has that ever worked out for you? But that's deception (laughs) that believes that. It's pride that keeps many Christians enslaved to their sin. It's pride that causes you to believe that it's better if nobody knows your struggles. It's pride that says, I can get over this on my own. It's pride that says, I'm sorry that I did it this time, but God, if I just try harder next time, it's going to be better. It's pride that keeps you back from crying out to help for help to God and to those Christians around you that can help you. And frankly, it's pride. It's pride that keeps many people from coming to Christ. There might be a person here today, and in your heart, you know that you are not a Christian. But you don't want to embarrass yourself. You think, what will people think of me? I don't want to give up this part of my life. I mean, I've grown up in this church, or I've been a part of this church, or I've been a Christian. I've said I've been a Christian. I've already been baptized. Like, I can't say it now. And it's pride that keeps you back from giving up your life for Christ. It's pride that has the desire to save yourself at all costs, to keep your dignity and keep your sin. From pride comes lies and secrecy and deception and gossip and theft and arguments, contentions and addictions. You kind of get the whole point? The big problem we have is what? Pride. Really, the center of pride, as they all say, is what? I, is self, it's me. C.S. Lewis says, it's pride that the devil came to be the devil. Pride leads every other, pride leads to every other vice. It's complete anti-God. So what's the answer to pride? What's the answer to our problem? It's humility. One man said it like this, pride is your greatest enemy, humility is your greatest friend. You know what? We don't think like that, do we? Some of you right here are sitting here and thinking, maybe you're listening online, you're in the, and you're thinking, I don't want to humble myself. That's a terrible thing to do. But that's not God's opinion. Actually, God knows that freedom and grace comes when you humble yourself before him. Humility is your greatest friend. And here was Peter, a man filled with himself and filled with pride, self-dependent. He didn't need God. He needed only himself, or so he thought. And Jesus brought him down hard. After his last lie, he told. The Gospel of Luke records, the Bible says that Jesus turned and he looked at Peter. I mean, imagine that moment. With one look, Jesus pierced the soul of Peter and crushed him in humility. Peter was like that plane where the wings fall off and he just fell down like a rock. He crashed. And again, that's where God wanted him. And it's not because God wanted him to just be low. It's because God knew that when he was low, he could give him his grace and he could exalt him back up to where he wanted him to be. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to conclude here. 1 Peter 5. Jesus humbled Peter, and then Peter humbled himself. What Peter witnessed when he saw the sufferings of Christ, he saw the model of humility. He saw Jesus as the humble one. Jesus humbled himself to come as a man, and then even further to die for our pride-filled, sin-cursed hearts. Jesus brought us humility so we could have the gift of humility and receive his grace through it. So look at 1 Peter 5, 1. He says that Peter was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Through Christ's humiliation, Peter could have grace. And because of Peter's humiliation, God gave him grace. Isn't that an amazing thought? Through Christ's humiliation, Peter could have grace, and that's what he witnessed, Christ being humbled and suffering for his sin. And because of Peter's humiliation, God gave Peter grace. So look down at the end of chapter 5, verse 5. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So verse 6, humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Do you realize You can't have God's grace. There's a couple times in the service where we sang about it. Josh prayed about it. I think Pastor Roger maybe even said something. But you know, you can't have that grace from God unless you humble yourself before him. God wants you to humble your heart 
under his sovereign hand. Now, at the beginning of my sermon, I talked about my grandma and how she came to faith in Christ. Really what happened was she got this letter in the mail from her husband who was passing away. He gave the gospel in there. And from that, she decided to go to this church. They were having evangelistic meetings. And so she went there and heard the gospel preached. At the end of the sermon, they sang this song, Rock of Ages. And really, she came to the place when she heard this song, she realized that there was nothing that she could offer the Lord. She had a heart full of pride. And the song goes like this. Nothing in my hands I bring. I have nothing to offer the Lord. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. She went and talked to the pastor. One of those old invitations, you know, people used to come down front, which actually in the 20th century, that's something that was very common. Some people still do it today. That's a humbling thing to do. And she did that, came down there in front of the entire church while everyone was singing. I think the piano was just playing or whatever. And there she realized her need for Christ. This is what she wrote. She said, I pleaded to God to forgive my sins and come to my heart. God in his love had mercy and heard my cry and lifted the burden of my heart. The Lord is nigh to them who are of a broken heart and saves the humble spirit. Psalm 34, 18. Friend, do you realize the great need you have is to humble yourself this morning before the Lord? And I wonder if there's someone that's listening to my voice. God has put you in a place of, some, of suffering, of humility. And maybe he's waiting for you to humble yourself before him under his almighty hand so you can receive the grace that he offers. And then last, again, I'm going to conclude with this. We're not going to really go into this because we'll look at this next week. But Peter expected future glory. Look at the end of verse 1 as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Jesus said in Luke 14, 11, he who humbles himself will be exalted. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall exalt you. Here in 1 Peter 6, we see that the Lord humbles or exalts those who are humble. We don't have time to go into this this morning to understand necessarily what this means, but Peter, he longed for the exaltation of, he would receive when Christ came back in his second coming. And I think that's what he's talking about, the, the partaker of the glory, that's future glory, that's going to be revealed when Jesus comes back. God doesn't want to humble you so you stay low. God wants to humble you so he can exalt you high. Exaltation looks like this. It looks like God lifting your spirit up into his presence. As chapter 4 said, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And so you can enjoy the presence of God, the grace of God, the joy of God, the comfort of God, the peace of God. And exaltation looks like God lifting your body and soul into glory when he comes and you get to share in the glory of Jesus Christ. I, like I said, I was reading this book on, by Andrew Murray. He said, I'm going to paraphrase it. He said this, the path to the higher life is lower and lower and deeper and lower. The lower we get in humility and dependence on God, the more he fills us with grace. And the more grace we have, the higher we go in glorifying God and enjoying the presence of God until someday Christ comes and his grace is dumped out from heaven upon our souls and we get to partake of the glory of Jesus Christ when he's revealed. And I think that's what he's talking about here. So church, what does this mean for us? It's interesting how God brings us a certain text like this and it speaks to what we're going through in our heart. I suspect the Lord is working on some hearts here this morning. Maybe you're crushed. Maybe you're crushed by something that's going on in your life or some difficulty or suffering and you feel humbled. And let me encourage you, church, Christians, humble yourself before God. You don't, don't stay low in your spirit. Actually, Go to God in prayer under his almighty hand and enjoy the exaltation of his presence and his glory. I kind of wonder if, as I was speaking, maybe there's a particular sin. Maybe there's something, or there was a time in the sermon where the Holy Spirit like pushed right in your heart and you're like, ooh, that's me. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning and it's something you're like, I need to humble myself in this area. And let me encourage you, please respond to the Holy Spirit in obedience. 
And maybe you're in here and you're uncertain about your salvation. Or maybe you think, I'm not a Christian. Let me encourage you to humble yourself before Christ and trust him as your Lord and Savior. I'm going to ask Ben to come up, and I'm asking him to play for us. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I just want to have a time of response. I think after sermons like this, it's important for us to respond in humility before the Lord in prayer. And here's what I'm going to do something a little different. If you're new, we don't normally do this. But maybe you say, you know what, I need to humble myself before the Lord. And maybe one way to do that this morning is maybe just to turn around in your chair and kneel in your, on, on the floor in your chair to the Lord in prayer. Maybe, maybe one of the ways for you to humble yourself this morning is to pray to the Lord, but you say, I, I actually need to like physically go down to the ground and cry out to the Lord in prayer. As Ben plays here, Ben, you can go ahead and start playing as he prays, plays here. Let me encourage you to pray to the Lord right now and humble yourself before the Lord. If the Lord is working in your heart, would you bow your heart before Christ and humble yourself before the Lord? Lord, we believe the best place for a Christian is right in the center of grace. And therefore, that means that we are maybe physically or maybe just in our hearts, we're on our knees before you. And we cast our cares upon you because you care for us. We confess our sins to you because you forgive us. We cry out to you because you are there to help us and we humble ourselves before you. We cannot do life on our own. We cannot do church on our own. We cannot do, do this on our own. We need you. We need your grace. And so I pray for our church. Oh Lord, what an opportunity we have in our country, in our city, in our time to see you do a great work, but it won't happen until we are humble before you. So break our hearts. God, really do whatever it takes in our country, in our church, in our lives to bring us to our knees. And we hate to say that because we don't like doing that kind of thing. <laughs> we don't like what that feels like. But we know that, Lord, there's a future glory. We're not living to move to another state. We're not living to get a better job. We're not living to get more money. We're living for the future glory of Jesus Christ when he's revealed. And that's what this church is about. That's what you're about. And, Lord, that's what we want to be about. So, Lord, help us to be about our Father's business. Help us to be about your business.